This is Red, Blue, Black, Silver, film composer and musician. I'm here with Andrew on Dead Hand Radio. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I'd like to get into a bunch of areas with you. Um, but first of all, let's talk about the uh, the genesis of how you and I kind of got to know each other. Because we've been connected on Twitter for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I know that you're friends with a couple of people that I'm associated with on Twitter as well. And they've, uh, you know, I've, I've heard them shout out your music occasionally. <sighs> And then I saw that you were, um, you know, and, and I think we were connected on Twitter before I even found uh-huh. out that you were doing the soundtracks for uh, uh-huh. some of Jeremy Corbell's films. And I thought, that's pretty cool, man. I know, you know, I didn't know you, but I, I'm connected with this dude on Twitter. He knows a couple of people that I know. Uh-huh. And then the other day, um, a mutual friend suggested that you and I hook up and do a podcast episode, which is why we're here right yeah and that's that's randy and i believe you spoke with him recently as well uh from here on mars uh and and randy is a wonderful person i he i hope everyone that listens to this goes and also listens to his if they haven't already because he's absolutely one of my favorite people that i just haven't physically met yet i think i've known him for two two and a half years we've worked on a couple of things and one of the projects I'm working on right now that I'm super excited about is a, a joint album with him. So the title of the project is Red Mars, and that combines the first part of my name and the last part of his. And it, it kind of fits because Mars is the red planet. He, uh, where we line up is in our appreciation of uh German electronic music from the 70s, craft work and things like that. And I, I think that that's where we'll wind up uh, having some overlap. Well, what makes him a good artist and particularly what I think informs a lot of his lyrics, and I think if he were here to agree, is that he feels everything. He's, I don't, sensitive is the wrong word. He, he just has his, his antenna up all the time and feels things deeply. And I think that that's what makes him good at, at what he does, but it also means that he absorbs everything in the world around him. And, and when it is negative and this year hasn't been great for a lot of people, you know, he's going to pick up on that, you know, where I'm, I'm more, a little bit more closed off. Um, I don't write lyrics. It, it's easy for me to be a little bit, uh, disaffected with things and you know when I speak with Randy at times about things in the world I think I try to be a settling um, influence on on him because I, you know I'm always trying to calm him down and I'm almost a decade older and you know you get to the point where um, and it's not that I, I know more, I just know how to shut things off better, maybe. 
um, over time. And um, it, it, again, I, I wouldn't change anything about him. I, he's, he's a great guy. It's just he and I, he and I see things a little bit differently. And um, that's never been a problem though. One of the great things about him is that he is accepting of people where they are, um, as long as they're, they're not evil. He is more tolerant of a broader base of political views than I am sometimes, you know, he, it's, he's really good about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, there's a couple of things that you said that were, that were like key, um, indicators to me that we need to talk about those things. One Uh of them was your reference to the seventies, uh, techno music. Uh Definitely want to talk about that because that overlaps with my own personal interests, uh, which is the cold war and how it affected our lives, how it impacted the world. Um, before we get to that, so keep that in mind and remind me if I forget, so we can go back and talk about that extensively. But I, I would like to get a little bit of background about you and, you know, your, your journey with music and then, um, you know, how you got into composing soundtrack for movies. And, um, so basically how, how the evolution of, of your career as a musician and a sound engineer has transpired. That's great. So I am originally from upstate New York, not too, too far up where I still had access to the city, had relatives in the city, even though I, I was born there, but I I don't remember it. They, They moved us out, um, pretty soon after I was born. But um, the good thing about it is I had the influences of country music in a stronger way than I might have if I lived in the city, but I still had access to Manhattan through a bus ride or or a train ride or this or that. I went to the State University of New York, uh, which had at, at purchase, which is about half conservatory and half normal liberal arts. And I was able to take a lot of studio composition classes and learn the mechanical aspects of being a musician. Uh, they had the tape deck there, the console, all of the stuff I didn't really have access to otherwise. And, and so I was really uh, starting there in 1990, I was, in on early forms of digital recording, but was still learning on tape. And uh, I had a conversation with someone yesterday about all of the different forms of evolution and that uh, recording took on. And um, I was there for overlapping bits of all of them. It was just well-timed. It was, it was a good time to be, to be in college in the early nineties. A lot was happening that, um, you know, to get to related to the Cold War, we had just gone through the wall, the Berlin Wall coming down, Tiananmen Square, all of these things in the world. And it was just a great, you know, I'm glad I was born in 1972 because I, I don't, if I was much older, much younger, I'd be a significantly different person. Um, before that, though, I started in elementary school with music at the same time that a lot of people do around fourth grade and always liked it. It was always my favorite elective thing. Um, I sustained a lot of injuries as a child and 
sports weren't really um, much of an option. I played hockey and things like that, but my interests usually revolved around music after that point because my body couldn't be relied on to, to not get injured <laughs> eventually. And then once the, the injury started accumulating, then it hurts to move around a lot. <laughs> but when I went to school and started to learn about production, recording, and engineering, it was really to uh, have a, a way to, to make money and still be around the musical environment and to, to have some kind of career. And I, I never really thought that I would be a performer as much. Um, and, and I, being from that area, I was able to get little jobs like running cable at Bearsville Studios, which is near Woodstock. Um, a lot of the guys from the band still lived in Woodstock around them, the actual town, not where the festival was held across the river. And it, it just was a cool time to, to come up and to, to get started then. I uh, have had a lot of different aliases that I've performed under, but this is the one that I feel the most at home in. And it's a long story about how I came about to, to taking on this project. I uh, was um, in a car accident. My wife and I got rear-ended on the freeway in, uh, in Oxnard, and I sustained some uh, brain injury and some other injuries, and it really affected my uh, dexterity and I gave up music between 2015 and 2017. Fortunately, have most of it back, but that's the the last um, bit of skill I'm trying to get back is to try to match Randy in that album. So if I get to that level, I'll feel like I've fully recovered. Um, but I didn't play music from 2015 to 2017 and heard. Uh, Desert Oracle Radio, which is a radio show that broadcasts on KCDZ uh, 107.7 FM here in Joshua Tree. And uh, it was just an amazing show. I somehow found out about it from the very first episode. I had walked past his office all the time on my way to work, and I was always curious about what Desert Oracle was. I bought the books, found out about the radio show. And I was just a super fan for you know, nine or 10 weeks, the first episodes, I would write him in with, with dumb ideas for the show that I'm glad he didn't actually carry out and do because they would have been off brand and things like that. But then I decided that I could apply some of what I had been doing for my own healing music in the past to the ambient sounds that he was putting on the show. And, and at the, the show sounds great before I joined. If you listen to the first 11 episodes before I got involved, they're still fantastic. But I, what I thought I can contribute was more of a consistent musical style than him getting music from various other sources. And he still does it once once in a while, uh, where he'll he'll need something in particular and we'll we'll grab it. But uh, really, since the twenty fifth episode, it has been ninety five percent my music, and I'm really proud of that. It's a great show. 
it's about desert life, history, culture. Um, he stays away mostly from current events unless it pertains to desert conservation or something else directly relevant. He doesn't get into, you know, healthcare and, and stuff like that. But it's a fantastic show, atmospheric. And um, Jeremy Corbell, the filmmaker, the documentarian who's known for his um, extraordinary belief series, the Bob Lazar Area 51 and Flying Saucers film got a lot of attention because of Storm Area 51. And, and uh, he also made Hunt for the Skinwalker and Patient 17. All of them run uh, various, all of the, the streaming services. But uh, Jeremy was a guest on Desert Oracle when I first started. And then he was referring to work he was doing on the film that would eventually become Hunt for the Skinwalker. And me being kind of bold and, you know, unashamed to promote myself, I wrote to him and said, hey, if you like what I've done for Desert Oracle, why don't you, uh, you know, consider putting some of my music in your film? And it wound up really being a good match. And I made all of the music for Hunt for the Skinwalker. I know uh, you've had Jeremy McGowan on uh, on the show recently talking about Skinwalker Ranch. So I'm, I'm you know, I don't want to get too redundant, but uh, of of what your your listeners have already heard. But there was a certain tone that that film needed to have when you're talking about what's essentially call it whatever you want, but the place is haunted with something from somewhere, multiple in multiple ways according to multiple sources, and I needed to produce a sound for that that wasn't necessarily pleasant to listen to on its own but needed to serve the film and the people that do what I do well think about the film first and then what it would sound like on the soundtrack album second and it it got so scary that my pets would hide underneath the the couch whenever I was playing that kind of music and some tracks in particular and, um, you know, really unsettling stuff on purpose that I haven't done before or since. But there, if you know about the legends of what people believe about Skinwalker, is that it's not confined to the ranch and it can follow people. It can meet people where they are. And I'm not going to go and say that there was any kind of presence that was available to me when I was making it. But I also know that whenever I've tried to make something that sounds that off-putting, it never comes out the right way. You know, I, I tend to, to be really kind of mellow and, and uh, you know, kind of in line with mostly ambient music. So that was a one-off. The, that film came out in September of 2018, and uh, I went to the premiere in Las Vegas, where you are. And uh, then very shortly afterwards, the 
uh, film about Bob Lazar came out, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. And that was also, also by Jeremy Corbell. I made about a little bit less than half of the music for that. Some the rest of it was done by Oliver Lewis, Parasomnia. Uh, that film um, on its own merits got more attention than Hunt for the Skinwalker. It's, it is a, a little bit more of an advanced film in some ways. Um, but the thing that got had to get a lot of attention a few months after it came out, maybe seven months or so, is when it came out on Netflix the same week that Jeremy Corbell went on Joe Rogan's show and talked about it, the same week that we went to AlienCon. So all three of those things happened in the same week in June. And uh, that wound up getting the attention of Maddie Roberts, who started Storm Area, the Storm Area 51 meme. And then uh, probably a lot of your listeners are at least familiar with with that situation and it wound up getting worldwide attention and it wound up um, becoming a real part of of the consciousness of the country and I'm really proud to be associated with that even in just my little minor way. There have been the, the that film and the attention it got really opened my eyes up. I was already familiar with the UFO community. I already considered myself a part of it, you know, at least an ancillary outside member of it and more of a, a in a cultural way than uh, as a deep researcher. Certainly I wouldn't call myself that. But the, the interesting thing about it is the interaction that I had with the UFO community mostly because of how I set my soundtracks up. Now, someone might say, well, what does the music really have to do with the substance of the UFO community? It does in my case. My soundtrack albums are made up of the music, but I also dissect and pull out the key lines from the film so that if you listen to the soundtrack albums in a row, it's sort of like getting a, a Cliff's Notes kind of digest of the film. And that led to editorial decisions on my part of, okay, well, what lines do I put in and what do I put out or what do I leave out? So um, given the understandably conspiratorial nature of the UFO community, if I left something out, I was criticized, you know, mostly in DMs, but sometimes a little bit more public for covering some part up or, you know, engaging in the story. So if they thought that the film had an agenda, they saw me as an extension of that. And uh, so if they, if they didn't like the film, they didn't like the soundtrack in a lot of the same ways. And it wound up with some really interesting interactions with members of the UFO community that were sometimes a little bit frightening and, and uh, ominous. Um, in in that, uh, like like the public in general over the last ten years, when you're able to craft all of your information sources to be exactly what you want them to be, you wind up with a certain set of unchallenged viewpoints. If someone comes along and challenges them, it's not seen as challenging those ideas it's seen as challenging them personally and 
when there would be disagreements, things would get personal almost instantly because that person felt insulted that their worldview was was being messed with, you know, and I got every accusation from being, you know, deep state or CIA, um, you know, and I understand that Operation Mockingbird does exist did exist does exist i don't know what state it's in we we do know that the cia has gotten themselves involved in in media and entertainment and pushing an agenda through it that's not even in dispute anymore so i understand where people come from you know in my case it happens to be barking up the wrong tree but i i, I tried to understand why people thought that an operation mockingbird does have a lot to do with it i if your listeners don't know what it is, I encourage you to look it up. It is uh, a CIA program where they got involved in films and TV and um, some say that they were behind the Scorpion song, um, Winds of Change that came out around when the Berlin Wall came out. and there are folks that allege that that entire song was written by CIA staff or contractors, or some agents or whatever. And I don't even know that that's true, but you can kind of see how people get there. Um, even if sometimes it's overblown and, and doesn't always make a lot of sense in practical terms. So, um, you know, and I'm still supplying Jeremy with music. I don't know what it'll be used for, but if I make something that sounds like he might need it someday, I send it to him. And, you know, and we'll see what happens. Hopefully there'll be more films coming out. Um, you know, I, I tend to work where I make things first and then, then send it to the person that I think could, could use it the most as opposed to sitting down and saying, I'm going to make some UFO music now. I don't really work that way. It's more, um, more spontaneous improvisational than that. You said a couple of things about the about the evolution of your career or the, the evolution of your music that I, I want to key in on because I think it's important for people, especially for younger people that want to pursue a, a career in music at, you know, in some way. Um, you started out early and you, you kept that interest um, over the period of time that you were going through school, which is hard mm -hmm. to do for one thing, because there's so many distractions for young people. But uh, through college, you took advantage of the technology that was available to you, which you didn't have um, at home. And then when you, um, when you got out of college and started to work in the industry, you weren't trying to go straight to the top of the the food chain in that industry you were willing to work basically grunt work carrying cables cleaning offices mm -hmm. just to be around the people that are in the industry so that you could make those connections so that you can learn the craft yeah it, it even working as a sound tech in in little dank moldy smelling clubs just any any way of being around it sometimes it was if you got a little tiny stipend for your work, sometimes it would cost me more in gas just to get there and back. Um, but I got to meet a lot of great people and, 
even though I worked in and out of the industry at different points, I've never really spent more than a couple of years away from it. And when it has been interrupted, it's been, like I said, because of, of an injury or uh, something out of my control, but I've never fallen out of love with it. And um, a lot of other forms of entertainment I can do without, uh, but not, not music. I need, I need something. Uh, I either have to make it myself or get it from somewhere else. The, but the, the young, I think the, in terms of advice to young people, it would be um, to learn things that might be on the periphery of your immediate task. And you might need that thing at some point later. Um, ask questions when you think it's appropriate to time-wise. So, you know, a lot of the professional road techs, I would try to learn from, but you don't do it when they're scrambling five minutes before uh, the show's about to start. You know, when they're sitting around having a smoke or something like that, you can go talk to them like, hey, how come you did this, that, this way? And um, they, if they're not scrambling nine times out of 10, they'll um, accommodate you and tell you why. And um, I've learned more from the people that aren't necessarily household names than the people I've spoken with that are. And it's just that they, they maybe see things from a more technical point of view. The um, another thing that I like to do um, that I've learned from and, and someone coming up now has much more of this available to them is learning how albums were made either those classic album series that, you know, and, and I've, I've watched documentaries about the making of albums that I don't even particularly like, but if someone was going into how they were made, that means they were at least at some baseline level of popularity in the public. And that makes it, um, you know, if, if, just because it doesn't line up with your personal taste, maybe someone did something right in there that allowed it to be popular and allowed it to, to be memorable to people. And if you study that, or even if you study what they did that you don't like, then you just do, don't do that again. But I really try to be able to find something going on in even my least favorite songs. You know, maybe it's just the drummer's killing it you know, and everything else is just kind of okay, or the song's lousy or whatever. But I try to find at least some part of even the things that I like the least to respect. And YouTube is such a, a great, or whatever video service you want to use, has so much more information in it than I've ever learned in school that you just have available to you. And I, I would suggest that young people have as broad you know this is all just generic stuff but listen to as much music from as many continents and cultures as you can learn about how they were made even if it's not something that really lines up with what you personally like and you will have all of these reference points in your head and eventually you just don't even think about what you're um what you're doing in in a laborious way you just have a flow and 
that's why I personally am able to produce a lot. It's not a matter of how much inspiration or what your standards are, but sometimes it's just ergonomics and workflow that I just sit down and everything's exactly what I need it to be, where I need it to be. I don't get a lot of new equipment. I don't cycle through things. I have basically the the same process that I had many years ago. And that allows me to have almost no barrier between the musical idea and the recording. Uh, you, you, you also mentioned throughout your career that uh, there, there were points in your career and it was, seems like it was pretty early on in, in, in the um, process of, of building a name for yourself and getting connected with people that you had the confidence or, or, I mean, it had to be confidence in your abilities to be able to produce the quality of music that you felt these people would be interested in. Um, but you didn't hesitate to go out and uh, reach out to people and talk to them and, and tell them about you and who you are. How important is that in the process? Okay, so part of that is building relationships, with, which mm-hmm. is critical mm-hmm. in, in, the, um, in how a successful a person is going to be. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. The relationships you build are really going to open up doors for you to, to go into areas that you really want to be. But how important is it for a, a person who's just coming up to build that confidence and be able to go out and introduce yourself and meet the people that can open up those doors? It does take a combination of shamelessness and fearlessness to do it the right way, in my opinion. And I think people have to just get over themselves in some way and know that um, you're going to get shot down 85 to 90% of the time. And you just, that just means you write 10 notes, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I, I think people are really afraid of either bothering someone that's busy or, that they're not enough of a name. And what I've found is that artists and techs and all of those people, if you approach them in the right way, you're patient, you don't expect an answer right away to something that's not critical, are really accommodating. A lot of people that are involved in music like talking about music, they do. You have to do it in a respectful way where you're you're, you're yourself approachable and you don't, push too hard you know one of the things i personally credit for being able to you know even the local musicians that i know around here that i consider myself peers i played with i think 20 to 25 different musicians locally in 2019 alone you know shows where it's either a collective there's a bunch of us or you know mostly it was me and someone else and you know, just keeping your um, keeping your personality 
even if it's not a winning personality, I don't consider mine a winning personality, but just being predictable. You know, I, I don't drink and that which I do is just part of me. And I think that people know that they can count on me to have the same personality at two in the morning after a show that I did at 6 p.m. setting up. And that's when I've somehow had to cut people off sometimes is when I can't rely on them to be reasonable. And I have to keep in mind, you know, how many drinks have they had? What, what have they done here? What have they done there? I think just not being random. I'm, I don't think I'm particularly, you know, uh, charismatic. It's just that people know that I'm going to act the same at 10 in the morning as I do at 10 at night. And that's, it's just the way I am. Yeah. Those are, those are more personality traits and, and what you're, what you're saying is to put that into action is to be dependable. Don't be the guy Um, that is always complaining or, or the girl who doesn't want to do the the menial jobs? Uh, you're there in the beginning. You're there to be able to make the other person's job that much easier. When you do that, they're willing to spend their time in helping you pursue your own career goals. I, I yeah, I think especially in the modern age when people have the ability to contact uh, through social media so easily a bunch of others that if you turn someone off, um, you can be turned off forever for a very minor thing because they have 10,000 other people that they can call. It's not like having a local scene when I was coming up that the same 30 people playing for each other and you know, if you make someone mad, they're more likely to kind of let bygones be bygones because they're going to see you 50 more times that year and you have, you know, more chances to redeem yourself. I think people right now, they they can literally block you from their lives electronically. And you, it's so easy to do. And I'm, I'm glad that that exists. I've had to do it. But um, I, I think folks are, have become... Um, and maybe rightfully so, really apt to cut people out that they wouldn't or ordinarily in a small town, you'd run into them over and over again. It's not really an option. Yeah. Good point. So uh, I'd like to rewind it a little bit and um, get back onto the topic of I only paused because I've got multiple paths that I want to take mm-hmm. the um, let's go. Let's go talk about your, um, your early childhood as you know, and you were growing up in New York in mm-hmm. the seventies, um, which was, a. I mean, you might've been too, too young to remember uh, the effects and the fallout of the Vietnam era, um, which was a, a big, um, a big focus of the uh, of the Cold War era, um, and then there were some other incidents in the '70s that took place that were highlights or low low points, <clears throat> um, such as the Iran hostage crisis. Right. 
but uh, you're you're probably a lot more familiar with the events leading up to the inauguration or the election and the inauguration of Ronald Reagan, and then what transpired after that. Is is that pretty much accurate? Yeah, I mean, let's let's start. Let's go in order because I I do Vietnam affected my life in a great many many ways and and um let's let's start off with that and kind of go in chronological order so my father who's still alive wonderful guy um is a vietnam vet he went over i believe in 1967 um give or take so you know towards when it was getting really you know the, the peak of the violence. And I wasn't born yet, but my experiences in my life have been formed by Vietnam in some really direct ways that I would like to talk about. So the children of veterans, I think, even if they didn't personally serve need to be treated as if they served. And I, you know, again, my dad's a good guy, but it's inevitable that the children of the veterans suffer. And, and it just, would be just to, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just to be fair, that, that needs to extend to the spouses as well. Yeah, absolutely. All family, you're, that's a good point. You know, I'm seeing it from my point of view but the spouses yeah absolutely if it's worth sending someone uh to another country uh to fight then it's in moral obligation to take care of whatever familial repercussions there are and you know i don't even need to get into psychological stuff uh people in in my generation were you know a lot of them were genetically damaged by Agent Orange exposure. And, and that happened all the way up through the war today, particularly with um, the per Persian Gulf syndrome and, and all of those things. We still don't know what happened. And, you know, I have a severe form of colorblindness that's unexplained by genetics um, to the point where I almost see things in black and white. I can't do electrical work. I'd kill somebody if I mis mispaired the blue and the purple wire. You know, I can't do stuff like that. I can do soldering and I can repair things, but anything complicated. So, you know, there is, and that's a big related part of doing what I do is to be able to fix stuff. And um, at a disadvantage, I, there are, I think, but for that, I think I probably would have, uh, continued to study more electrical engineering type stuff rather than that. And I know that I'm complaining about something that's really minor compared to the um, sacrifices that the veterans themselves made, that the spouses made, the parents of the veterans made, and all of that. And even some of the other people that are affected by Agent Orange had much more drastic things. But when I think about the war and how it's become documented in the culture and remember historically um it's much more about apocalypse now than coming home the film about 
I think John Voight was in it about the struggles that a returning veteran had uh, upon, you know, so Vietnam movies and, and the culture that are, that revolve around it. Um, if, if you make that, uh, if you make it to the end of your tour of duty, they never pick up the story after that. And, you know, a lot of the people continue to struggle, continue to struggle to this day. And um, yeah, and I do think that we need to provide those resources at least one generation in every direction. And I believe that the children of veterans should be able to go to the VA. Does that mean we have to ramp up VA uh, facilities and funding and all of that? If we have to multiply it by 10, then let's multiply it by 10. It's we're not on the gold standard anymore. We can just, you know, this stuff is possible to do. It just takes political will and it takes the the realization that if we don't do it, it's more expensive because there are a lot of people not participating in the economy because they have disabilities that aren't being treated there. It costs us as a country beyond the moral obligation that we have to deal with the ramifications of war. We have an obligation to um have as many uh, able-bodied and happy people in the country as as we should have, as if the war didn't happen. And um, yeah, it's a lofty goal and would take a, a, a pretty significant restructuring um, of the Department of Defense and the Veterans Administration. But, you know, there are a lot of people my age that didn't get drafted, didn't enlist, and they're still affected by it and that it wasn't their choice. And, you know, even if it was their parents' choice or not, uh, I think when we start to learn more about neurology and that matures as a science, we're going to realize that there are entire generations of veterans' children that have neurological problems and, and um, you know, all, all of these things that maybe we don't even, we haven't even detected yet there was some kind of uh, set of lawsuits and, and stuff meant to correct that in the eighties for agent orange specifically. And I don't know that that was really effective enough because I don't even think that all of the disorders were known, the, um, the different ways that that could manifest itself and, and how long it can stay, um, you know, stay in, in, your body, even if it's not, <laughs> the, the chemical can't be tested, it affects DNA, you know, <laughs> um, and, and just my heart goes out to the veterans, of course, but I think as a society, we're not really weighing the true cost on all of the, on the, all of the associated people. Fair points. Uh, and I don't want to really go down that avenue is as uh, too deeply because I, um, first of all, you're, you know, I 100% respect your opinion. Mm -hmm. And this is not a debate. This is not a, um, it's not a, an intense inquiry. You know, mm -hmm. I, it, it's just uh, two people getting to know each other. Yeah. Um, and if, if I were to either um, 
tried to dispute what you were saying, it would sound like a debate. If I were trying, mm -hmm. if I added to what you were saying, it would sound like piling on. Yep. I'd rather just leave it there and say, well, yeah. what you said is valid 100%. And, um, and then we can leave it there and move on. Um, there is one good movie that did illustrate the, the, uh, the treatment of veterans when they came back from the Vietnam War, which I think anybody who's interested in that period should also should look for and check out. Um, and it was a, a movie with Tom Cruise called Born on the Fourth of July. I'm very familiar with it. It's a fantastic film. I believe Oliver Stone made it. I think you might be right. Yeah, I didn't. I I, I forgot about that. But uh, I was very disappointed Tom Cruise didn't get an Academy Award for his performance in that film. He was nominated. I know that, but he he did not win. And yeah, it was probably just bias against him that they were probably used to him playing volleyball on the beach and, you know, goofy movies. And that was maybe one of his first really, really serious ones that I remember, at least. And, and he, he was fantastic in it. And the whole thing was really well done. Um, it. What that film. uh Okay, that dealt with a visible disability, you know, and uh, true, and but it it also dealt with the treatment of veterans by the mm -hmm. by the public, which is not mm -hmm. something you see represented in films very often. Mm -hmm. um, it's true, and I think it was really honest. And yeah, I I believe that if I believe Oliver Stone made it, and I also think that he did serve in Vietnam. Uh, so it, it was something that he could probably relate to directly. And yeah, I, I agree with you that if, if your listeners haven't seen it, it it's worth seeing. Yeah. Um, and so with that, do you, do you want to um, move forward a little bit and talk a little bit more about your, um, your, how your life or how the world was impacted around you? um by events pertaining to specifically the cold war the the conflict between soviet union and, and the u.s sure so um from a political standpoint you're correct that my political awareness started around the election of ronald reagan and um uh his campaign, you know, started probably in 1979, you know, when I started hearing about him kind of flexing on, on the Soviet Union. I don't remember exactly when he called them an evil empire, but the whole tone of, of his campaign and especially his early presidency was really hawkish. And that jived with even you know, cultural events like the 1980 uh, Olympics. Um, there was just a, a really strong um, cultural demonization of the Soviet Union in the 1980s that, hey, I, I'm, I'm not getting into whether that was the right thing to do or not. I'm just talking about what happened. There was Red Dawn, all of the stuff. And it wasn't like handled like it was in the 70s with um 
spy films and stuff like that. It, it was about how normal people in everyday life felt like they had to soldier up and participate in this thing. And uh, even though I don't know if it really directly relates to the Cold War, but one of the formative things I remember from the early to mid eighties was the bombing in Beirut in 83. maybe 19. Yeah. 83. Right. Um, that, that, that was when uh, I think the people that were born around when I did lost a lot of innocence because it was one of the things that you saw on television that was just so tragic and made no sense to any of us and seemed so random. There's no declared war. You know, I was aware of the hostage situation, but, you know, by the time Reagan came became elected i think that they were released the next day or something like that there was no mass casualty like there was with with beirut where beirut i didn't even i don't even think i knew what lebanon was um at the time so that 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 was something that i think isn't talked about enough as a world event because it was really significant and i would say very traumatizing for people my age that were you know 11, 12 years old, old enough to know what was happening, but too young to process it uh, uh, accordingly. And the, a, a lot of other stuff was happening culturally, like the film The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, was it the TV day after, film? The Day After. Uh, the Day After, sorry, yes. The, oh, thank you. Thank you for correcting me on that. Um, the Day After. Uh, I, I think was around the same time period. And that goes back to the idea I just talked about, about the ordinary civilian person at home in Kansas was suddenly a, a combatant, you know, in, in, in this thing. And I think that while the cold war did exist in, in the seventies, I think that there was, an effort, whether concerted or not, to make the person at home in the 80s feel like they were part of that and uh, contributing contributing to it. And, and it, that's the most patriotic period I remember other than, you know, September and October of, 2011, of 2001. I remember people being fired up about, about the Soviet Union, you know, um, Nikolai Volkov, the the heel in World Wrestling Federation, was the, I think that the, you know, symbol of the Soviet Union, and people love to see Hulk Hogan, the real American, beat him up, and I I think all of that was really, um, all part of of a cultural shift to hawkishness coming out of of the seventies into the eighties. Yeah, that's really interesting insight, and. Um... For somebody, if if you're going off of memory of your experience, man, you had some pretty next level awareness as a little dude. Um, because for me, I, I do remember some of those things um, affecting me on a on a uh, primitive level, you know, down mm-hmm. d- deep down in my in my spirit. I f- I was fearful, but I was also 
I was also intrigued by the things that were going on around us. Um, I, I didn't analyze it uh, like that until I got much older. Um, but uh, yeah, it certainly was a time of, you know, in that, that whole period, the Cold War, some people say that it extends back to 1917 with the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. I personally think it's more focused on the, the period of 1945, right at the end of World War II, until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I'm with you. I don't buy the thing about 1917. If you know the history of the 1920s, Herbert Hoover in the United States basically fed fed Russia or fed the Soviet Union they were having a horrible wheat famine and we shipped millions and millions of pounds of, of food over there. Um, And it's, it's, you know, Hoover's known for one thing and only one thing now. And I'm not, I'm not saying he shouldn't be known for the depression, but um, he did organize the effort to feed millions of those people. We were their allies in a lot of different ways for years and years after that. No, it wasn't really until, um, Yalta that they started to flex on each other and it's uh yeah I, I think it's if someone tries to portray the United States as inherently anti-communism from the get-go I think that that is uh ahistorical and it has an agenda because nice. it's 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 ignoring things yeah and it, it is easy to uh cherry pick which events you want to to focus on for mm-hmm. your thesis, you know, to, to be able to pr- prove your um, your point of view, and yeah, and, to and, leave and, out. And, and both sides do that, you know. I mean, in in especially in the media, you see, they I, okay. I don't I don't really want to go down that road. I don't want to talk about current day mm-hmm. events because there's a a lot of there's too much di- mm-hmm. uh, division in the country because of that stuff. Um, I, all I would want to say at this point is to le- leave it at this and um, say that the, uh, the the period of the Cold War, as we know it, as I look at it, mm-hmm. is the, the 45 to 91 period. Mm-hmm. And um, it impacted generations, multiple mm-hmm. generations of people, and it still to this day impacts us in some ways um yeah i mean there's one more aspect of the 80s it's more the the mid to late 80s that had to do with the cold war that i still think is under discussed which is um the iran contra affair and the fact that the entire purpose of that was to try to squash um communism in central america right so it was nicaragua i believe and that all has to do with the cold war even though it was you know a proxy war or a proxy conflict if if it wasn't a war um between united states backed uh people and and um the sandinistas and Contras and, and all of that stuff people should read about that because not only was that significant historically i think for people my age it was 
a newer, fresher example than Watergate of questioning your government and the value of doing that, knowing when things are on the up and up, it brings up the thing of, of what was the thing that they were trying to do right, even if they were doing it in the wrong way. It's very complicated. You know, I, it's, it was all based on the domino theory and, you know, anyone that listens to this show hopefully knows what that means, but it, um, it was the logical conclusion and almost the last flourish of the domino theory was what happened in Central America and how we got involved in it, how it was an end around around Congress, it, it, um, uh, dirty money, not being able to trust up. I mean, Watergate was way before that. I was born the month of the break-in. Um, but that was the first time in my contemporary life as a teenager, you get to see um, high-level ranking government officials get in really big trouble for something that they did. And, um, you know, arguably not enough trouble from some people's point of view. I don't know. That's maybe that's not a, a good thing to get into from a value-based judgment, but it did happen. People got in trouble. Um, reputations were damaged, though not permanently. You know, Oliver North wound up on Fox News that that much longer after. And it's not like these people had to go into hiding. Um, there was no real repercussion on Reagan or Bush. Um, Bush was a one-term. Herbert Walker Bush was a one-termer, but had nothing to do with any blowback from Iran-Contra and had more to do with the economy and other stuff. Um, so that was, it was both a, an example of seeing government officials get in trouble, but also to know that there's a certain, um, they can be impervious to getting in real trouble in, in the way that you or I would. You know, I saw I saw them as getting in trouble, but in not such a bad way that they were cast out of, out of society or imprisoned or anything like that. They were just slapped on the wrist. Yeah. I, I do want to get more into the topic about UFOs. I'll just, I, I've said this before, so if I've already said it, you can interrupt me, but my, um, I, I've never had an experience, never witnessed uh, even weird lights in the skies. Um, although I, I'm, I may have had some interaction with, with spirits when I was a kid, but I'm not sure about that. Um, but I was not really skeptical. I, I guess, I guess skeptical would have been a, a harsh word, but I was the, a non-believer until I read George Knapp's book, George Knapp and Colm Kelleher. The, I think it was called the hunt for the skinwalker, which is based is what the, the film um, that you worked on and that Jeremy Corbell produced and directed and, and filmed, I guess, I guess he did everything on that movie except for make the, the soundtrack. Hunt for the skinwalker, the book, I read shortly after it came out, I was stuck in the Denver airport, snowed in overnight. I was able to get into the bookstore just right before it closed, had to quickly grab something, didn't know what I was getting myself into. 
And uh, shortly after I, I bought the book and started to read it, the lights cut out in, uh, in the airport. And there was just a red kind of flickering security light, almost like a, a police light, but only the red part. And uh, it really set the mood for, for reading that book. Um, I was bleary-eyed and tired and, and just wanted something simple. And it wound up being so interesting that I read it all night long until it was over. And um, it, it definitely did change how I saw experiencers because the book was so detailed and um, well-researched and careful, you know, and I, I think that George Knapp writing it along with Dr. Kelleher was really smart because it, it added some academic punch to the situation. And e even though NIDS and, and all of those people are scientists, the fact that Dr. Kelleher, who I've, I only met for a second um, and, and don't know personally at all, um, really added, I think, a, a lot of weight to, to that story in in a way that I think made it a little bit harder for people to dispute, even though they, they did anyway. Um, it, it really launched a lot of things for me that I didn't see um, UFOs as a, a cultural um, phenomenon as much anymore. And I saw how real it was to people and how it affected their lives and um, how even though people have left the ranch, it doesn't necessarily stop. And, and um, that's, that's really powerful that whatever it is, presence follow you for thousands of miles and uh, continue to, to do the same trickster type stuff. And uh, it, it's something where I felt like I needed to do the fear justice when I, when I was assigned that project. And, it, you know, it, we talked about it a little bit before, but it's something where I didn't want it to be cartoonish. I didn't want to use horror movie tropes, creaking doors, um, you know, kind of metal sounds and, um, you know, all of the goofy stuff. I didn't want it to sound like John uh, John Carpenter in the sense that I didn't want it to have the familiar um, notion of what a horror movie sounds like, but I still wanted it to be off-putting. And the way I do most things is through tonality. I used a lot of diminished chords and, you know, the, the musicians that are listening know what that sounds like it sounds kind of terrifying and all it is is just moving something from a nor uh, you know changing one note of a normal minor chord you're used to hearing all the time and it sound it 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 adds uh something called the tritone it's an interval that was banned by the catholic church under penalty of excommunication because it sounds so sinister and um and I don't think that they've backed off on it. They've backed off on meat on Fridays and however many other things, but I don't know if they've ever actually changed their, their opinion about the tritone, but um, I, I tried to, to accomplish what I could without 
in any way diminishing these very real people's experiences. And it's an extra burden on me um, to deal with nonfiction things. So both in Desert Oracle and Jeremy's Jeremy Corbell's films, that these are real people that are mostly still alive and uh and I I don't want to make anyone feel like I've made a cartoon out of their life. You know, the only fiction work I do and it's very valuable to me is on a science fiction podcast called Simultaneous Times where I contribute music and sound effects and stuff like that. I even wrote one story that took place partially in Area 51 and S4. And that was a couple of months ago where I decided, hey, I'm just going to write a short story and see if I can get it on there. But that's the only fiction work I do. And that's a little bit of, you know, a workout for me to, to flex different muscles. But it's also a little bit of a breather because the, the nonfiction thing, it, it's a lot more pressure and documentarians need a lot more credit than someone making a nothing against superhero movies or this or this fiction or that fiction. But when you're dealing with real live subjects and confidentiality that needs to be protected and all of that stuff, it, it is almost more work than the work itself that you're assigned to do. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, especially for independent documentaries, uh, the budget that you have to work with is what much more diminished than what you have to, to do it's like you had a superhero movie or something like that. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the mechanics of it. And, and you know, Jeremy and, and I don't really talk about that aspect of it. Um, and certainly not in any detail. And, and my arrangement with him kind of keeps the, the, you know, keeps those details opaque for me. And that's fine with me. I don't, I don't, I don't want to know, don't need to know. Um, but what I can tell you is if he is like ordinary documentarians, they put their soul and everything into it, I think, on a way different level than someone making a comic book movie, man. I, I don't, I'm not trying to get down on any, any specific genre of fiction, but when you're dealing with something made up. It just isn't as important. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just isn't. <laughs> well, and, but the, the difference is you have such a huge fan base for those big blockbuster films, which allows them to have that budget to do, you know, the, the things, any, just about anything they want to do financially. I, I want to give props to independent filmmakers for doing what they do and producing such quality, high quality work as Jeremy has done with, uh, you know, at least his last two movies. Um, and, the quality of music that you've produced for those films because of the limited financial uh, resources available. But even, even with the limited resources, uh, the fact that it is a passion project and you guys put your heart and soul into those projects to produce the quality that the final product has to, to show for it. And then it's not only the 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 finished composition, the film that goes to the theater and gets distributed, but the, all the ancillary um, material that's been produced 
and is released after the the film has made its debut. There's just so much work that goes into it. And, uh, you know, I guess if I was to have a question for you, why would you do something like that? That's so demanding. And so um, the reward, the financial reward, so minimal uh, when you could probably do be doing something much bigger and for a much greater paycheck. It's true. And I have declined things that um, probably had more immediate gratification to it. Um, first of all, Jeremy just personally is important to me and I admire him in uh, ways that, you know, I, I, I just want to leave it at that, that I, I think that he's an incredible person as well as an incredible filmmaker. He inspires me every time I hear, I listen to all of his interviews, not because I want to like learn something. It's because I just find him an endlessly fascinating person. And, but, you know, even independent filmmakers that work in fiction, I think have it easier than independent documentarians. You can have the same budget, same everything, same resources. And as soon as you start introducing real people with real lives that can suddenly clam up on you if they're feeling spooked, like he has to manage all of that stuff. And if he was on this call, he, he might agree with me that that seems harder than the actual filmmaking itself is the managing of real people and real sources. And that's something that, you know, I, I love independent fiction film. It, it's great. I'm glad it's around, but it's just a way easier job than what he does. And then for just to go back to me personally, um, the most interesting stories to me are the true ones. I mean, I, I love the, the science fiction show I work on because the writing is so good and so groundbreaking and all of that, that I, I think it does sometimes portend reality or reflect it. Um, but ordinary fiction, it's just not as interesting to me personally. And, and I'm not trying to, to um, be down on what anyone else does, but, just truth is stranger than fiction is a, a very common cliche, but I really do think that it's often true. Yeah. And you know what, when we first started talking about this particular topic, we mentioned that the, uh, uh, well, at least in my opinion, and I think you share this, but the, the real focus of the UFO community should be on the experiencers let the disclosure people who, who want to pursue that avenue, let them go after it full bore and leave it to the journalists and the people in the administration or the people in Congress to work it out, to work out the details of that, you know, and yeah, let them, I, I, I do think that there needs to be pressure put on the military um, to bring forward the evidence that's, going to let the greater public know that these things exist. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not really where my, my interest is. That's not where my focus is. And it seems to me that that's kind of where you're the angle you're coming from too. I, I mean, it's got to have both. I just, I would like to see it more 50, 50, where it seems more like 70, 30 in favor of, um, 
you know, taking these little nuggets from the government, like these, these are all totally significant things that I'm about to list, but the Navy setting up an official communication channel for experiencers that, that want to report something, then putting out the Tic Tac videos, all of this stuff is totally important. And I, I don't want to diminish it while I'm talking about it, but um, it, it does seem contradictory to expect the people that are supposedly executing the cover-up to end the cover-up and to rely on them mostly as, as the, the lever that, that you see for it ending. I mean, it's not really in their interest to do it. And, you know, FOIA is a great tool that that's used. I would like to see that done more because I think that that's a way that even if you just file so many FOIA requests that you get them to accidentally give you something that, that they didn't mean to. Um, I know that that's happened before. And, um, but at the same time, talking to the people is, I think a little bit under uh, underutilized right now. Yeah, there's less interest, it seems. Uh, even among the UFO community, there's there's people that are doing it. Don't get me wrong; it's not it's not being completely ignored. But there's a handful of really well known stories or experiences. Um, that we hear about over and over and over. And unless you really delve into it and do your own research, finding other experiences outside of those, those core uh, experiences is, is almost difficult to do. I mean, you really have to dig deep and almost start talking to people yourself uh, to, to start to hear, um, more of these experiences and i'll tell you yeah. something that through my through my own it's not research it's not investigation it's probably not even work but through my own interest in this topic just by reaching out to to people and talking to people I, i've started to formulate some some conclusions I wouldn't actually say that they're conclusions because they're not final, but mm -hmm. I've, I've come to some understanding about this, about this aspect of the UFO subject. I'm not going to give that away because that's, you know, that's mm -hmm. still an ongoing process, but, um, I, okay. For, 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 take a step back for a minute. What you said about Jeremy, I totally get that. I've never met him in person, never even talked to him. But seeing his persona, his public persona, he seems to me, that seems to be a real person. What, what he's projecting in his interviews seems to be his real personality. It doesn't seem like it's a fabricated persona. And I, I, really... I can tell you, yeah, based on my um, knowing him for three years, that's really right on. There is nothing artificial about jeremy you don't have to agree with him he even says in every one of his movies i think you know here here's what i've gathered make your own you know draw your own conclusion you don't have to agree with me but you can't deny these facts and i i think hunt for the skinwalker the film he made is as close to that 50 50 ratio of going you know he definitely talks about the dod 20 
22 million spent on the ranch. He definitely talks about government sources. He starts off with film that way, but he also spends a lot of time talking to the people that live in the Uinta Basin about what they've seen, what they've experienced. And I think that that, I really encourage people to not only watch that on, on Hulu and Amazon, I encourage them to, to get it, to, to get it from iTunes or Vimeo for your benefit. So you get to see the extras because there's almost as much in the extras as there is in the film. And I think that that's true for that and Bob Lazar, where the total length of the extras is longer than the feature film itself. I believe that's true or it's very close. Not everything can make it in. I mean, Hunt for the Skinwalkers, over two hours. It's a really long film to maintain people's attention throughout. Um, but there's so much more that you know, he couldn't even possibly get in the film that's really, you know, it, if you're interested in the subject, you won't be disappointed in it. The, the, his films keep getting better. I can't wait to see what he's got cooking up next. But yeah, he's 100% genuine and, um, to me, even that extends to his personal integrity. And I think it's, he uses a lot of the same people in his films over and over again, because he needs to trust them in the same way that they're not going to make something public that shouldn't be. And that, and it's not just him protecting his film, he's protecting his sources. You know, he's protecting the lives of people that, he has usually become friendly, if not friends with through the course of the, the filming. And, um, it, and for someone to sell Jeremy out it, through confidentiality is for them to sell the source out as well. And that just, that just can't happen. So um, hopefully he'll, he'll, <laughs> Um, hopefully he'll work with me again. I would always um, welcome the chance. That's awesome. With whatever he's got going on. Uh, I just think he 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 just seems like a, a a genuine, a genuinely passionate person. Number one, and somebody who's sincere about what he's saying. You know, he doesn't seem like he's um, out there just trying to pitch a movie. You know, it seems like he has a legitimate interest in this topic and a sincere passion or, you know, sincere uh, interest in helping the people and, and find answers. You know, he's just looking for answers like all of us are. Right. Yeah. So he, when I see real, people, he's a I genuine see, seeker. What's that? He's a genuine seeker. Yeah. And when I see people, throwing, you know, throwing insults and, and questioning his motives. And it just, it, it just, to me, that illustrates the problems that are so prevalent in the, the UFO quote unquote community. Um, you know, they're, they're so quick to criticize other people for their work and question the motives for those people with, you know, why they're doing this, you know, if I could say anything to those people, it would be, you know, and to be honest with you, I really wouldn't want to say anything to those people because I'd, I would hesitate to, to even 
believe that they would hear it. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I would say is just stop, stop criticizing other people's work and start doing your own work. You know, if you, if you don't like what somebody else is saying, don't put that out there publicly. Just go do the work yourself and find the answers for yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, it goes back a little bit to when you're talking about people questioning each other's motivation in the UFO community and, and how it relates to someone making money. Like a, a lot of these things only exist because he, um, it, it, he is able to, re- to recoup some or all, or I don't know about the expense. I don't know about the, you know, that aspect of it, but if he just put those movies out for free, would they exist? You know, would they be the same? Would they be as thorough? Would he be able to go out to these remote locations? You know, I I just think people need to think about that stuff that just because someone is charging some charging for their art doesn't mean they're number one, making a lot doesn't even mean that they're making the money back. And um, I, I think, it's become a, a cheap shot that the UFO community can use against anyone that's selling any kind of product or any kind of thing. And it, again, it comes back to whether it's exploitative or not. And I sincerely don't think that that's the business that Jeremy Corbell is in. I agree. I, I totally agree with that. Um, he's really moving the needle when it comes to this subject. It, the work that he's doing is important. And I hope he continues to do that. And I hope he continues to generate more interest in future um, generations mm-hmm. for this, for, you know, interest in this topic. But but also I hope he, he continues to generate more support for him because without that support, it's hard for somebody to continuously put stuff out there and, um, produce the work because you know for from the perspective from my perspective i mean there's a there's a self-rewarding aspect to producing an entertaining and an educational uh show mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, f- f- whether it's music podcasting filmmaking painting there's a self-rewarding aspect to it but without positive feedback from other people it's almost it's almost like i don't know you you just need that positive feedback do you agree i do i i think that a lot of just with him in particular a lot of his motivations internal and uh that's incredible for him but yeah i think for 99% 99% of, of filmmakers, they need that, the reciprocity from their audience and, you know, sometimes even from the industry to keep going. And I, I can't blame people for getting burned out on doing something where they, they feel like there's no good outcome that can possibly happen. Can you talk, I, can you talk a little bit about it from your personal perspective? Producing as a, as a music producer. Mm-hmm. How hard is it for you to continuously create new and interesting work without having some feedback from the audience or from an external source? I mean, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't really know in this project what that's like because I am I receive so much positive feedback from people and I really have throughout I mean filmmaking is tough because you're doing all of this work and you might not get that feedback for a year you know you might you might be a year or more into the labor of the project before anyone can give you that positive feedback but when I make something for Desert Oracle radio on a Monday morning and then it runs on the next three, four days later on that Friday and then five minutes after the episode ends and then I get all of these messages from people, that really has, you know, it's been really instrumental in me thinking that I'm doing the right thing. And um, and it, I do have that instant gratification or almost instant gratification from it. And, you know, a, a lot of, it's really hard to make money on any kind of art right now. So I don't really see it as that, but yeah, the, the positive feedback means a lot to me. It really does. And I, I think, um, and it's not vanity. It's, uh, it's more like, it kind of tells me what to do again as opposed to what to stop doing. And, you know, a lot of people responded to one particular piece in the last episode of Desert Oracle Radio. And that signals to me that that is a good avenue to, to go down. You know, it's gonna be a different piece of music this time versus next time versus the time after that. But in terms of genre and feel and atmosphere, that tells me that that's what the people like. And over three years and almost a hundred episodes, you get really good at calibrating, you know, what works and what doesn't. Ultimately, um, Ken Lane, who is the host and editor and everything else on that show is the arbiter of what sounds good in the show, what makes it in, what he thinks is matching the aesthetic. But um, he can't place what I don't give him. You know, he he can place something I've given him already, but he, um, and he can always download it from another source, but, in, in, but where it, it generates is with me. And, you know, he gets to decide what runs and, and when, but I'm the one that is, you know, tennis term serving because <laughs> because it's just chronal. It just happens chronologically that way. You you obviously have an interest in this topic and um, it's almost impossible in this day and age unless you're, you know, not unless you're living under a rock to not have some kind of cross paths with the ufo subject but have you ever had any personal experiences with this type of uh phenomena it wasn't until last year um that i was 47 years old and my wife and i were driving in the car and we both saw the same thing or else i might not have even believed my own eyes but it was just it's the simplest kind of sighting of lights in the sky that you can describe something going impossibly fast along the border of the you know kind of where the park border is so joshua tree national park is this giant 
east to west border that that runs parallel to the highway and the lights were zooming at a speed that no land craft could ever approach uh so low to the ground and silent and uh i referred to uh getting crashed into in the freeway um several years ago and a habit i've developed since then is that i always leave the window cracked so i can hear a car coming it's just my own psychological problem but what the reason that that's relevant is i had the window cracked and this thing went by and any kind of normal propulsion or something from the marine base would make sounds and i don't trust my eyes i don't have really good vision i'm colorblind blah 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 but i do trust my ears it's an occupational necessity and I didn't hear anything. It was too close to us going too fast and too quiet. Could not be anything from this planet. And my wife had this the same exact uh, thing coming from it. So, you know, I was well into, you know, my own little part of being a part of UFO culture before I had my own experience, but I, my attitude towards experiencers has not changed one iota because I have the same respect for them and the same assumption that when I hear someone's story, unless they've been proven to be fraudulent in the past, I just tend to believe them because I think it's an, it's a mistake not to. There are people that have discredited themselves by falsifying things and getting caught or this or that. And that's different. But, you know, when someone talked to me at a talks to me at a, a an event or a premiere or a convention or they write me a DM or something like that, I just got to go with, you know, until I have more information, I assume that everything that they're saying is on the level because I think it's a mistake not to. Yes, it is, because you can you can multiply the trauma that a person has experienced by being dismissive of them especially if they're looking at you as a person um that they think is someone they can uh express or or impart their experience to you know there, there's a reason that a person would come up to you and tell you that uh, mm -hmm. now in my case it would be because i prompted them to share their experience mm -hmm. so for for me you know in my role as a curious person and you know prompting somebody to to share their experience it would be unconscionable for me to dismiss their experience uh are, are we okay yeah okay <laughs> every time i see you look over there no no, no. i was just uh checking the time because I've, I've got to wrap up by 12 oh okay um, we got i didn't minutes. notice how close we were getting Sorry, I didn't realize um, uh, that we had actually burned through to over two and a half hours already. Oh, no, that's it's great. A little bit was the interruptions and stuff. But no, I think it's just a good conversation. Absolutely. Um, so then what um, what I would like to do is uh, we could wrap it up right here. But before I let you go, I, I want to give you an opportunity to let people know if there's something that you're working on that you would like to bring attention to and how can people get in contact with you if they wanted to? So uh, I'm constantly putting out uh, recordings, albums, 
Missouri. I, I would say two things that I have going on all the time are Desert Oracle Radio and Simultaneous Times. Those are both you can find them wherever you find podcasts. I um, have a Bandcamp site. It's redblueblacksilver.bandcamp.com, or you can just go to redblueblacksilver.com. It'll get you there either way. But I have so many soundtrack albums, live recordings, studio recordings, um, uh, everything that that you could want. I put out uh, to take advantage of pandemic time. I put out twelve sorry, 20 different weekly mixes, which are uh, sometimes background pieces from podcasts you wouldn't hear otherwise by themselves and, you know, at normal listening volume, uh, other things I've done. So there's really anyone that wants to hear music that's different that you can work to. Uh, often, um, that's my favorite feedback I get from people you know, is that they're able to write creatively or work um, and, and to be able to kind of tune out the world. Uh, and th that's what I really want to help people doing, whether it's adding atmospheres to a radio show or a podcast or a film. I just want to add tonality and atmosphere to anything that 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 crosses my path, even, even the standalone albums. It's, it's something that my music is never going to impress anyone that wants to hear Eddie Van Halen, you know, solo ripping stuff. It's, there's enough of that out there. Mine is, is a little bit different. Yeah. Your music is cool, man. Um, I appreciate you. what you're doing. Um, are, do you, you said that you go to conventions. I know the conventions are shut down. There is one coming up in Laughlin in February. Do you have any plans to go to that one? No, I've only gone to two and they've both been, you know, as an extension of, of the work with Jeremy. So it's not like I'm going to them all the time. I went to contact in the desert once i believe in 2018 and then i went to alien con in la last year in june i think of last year that's not something where i'm doing those a lot if jeremy asks me to go and um you know help support the team i'm if i can logistically make it i do i do have a lot of travel anxiety from the you know various life experiences so i can't make everything but if he wants me to go to laughlin i'd love to go because it it's a cool place i like laughlin a lot just even by itself that you know nevada is the the state i would live in if i weren't here you know i i love it it's it's got everything i love about the desert and who knows that might be where where i wind up if you know some of the current trends continue that you know, maybe I get priced out. Maybe that's where I go by choice. I don't know. But it kind of seems like Nevada might be in my long-term destiny, even though I love the Mojave Desert, um, the part of the Mojave Desert I'm in. I love Joshua Tree. I barely ever leave. I don't even go to Palm Springs more than once or twice a year. I'm so content here, but you can never rely on 
you and a place being, um, you know, compatible forever. But if I had to bug out, like somehow the authorities didn't want me in California anymore, I would be so perfectly happy in, in Nevada and Laughlin's a great area. So hopefully I do get to go to that thing. That'd be great. Yeah. If you do let me know, cause I'm thinking about going there. It's only a 90 minute drive for me. And I'm, yeah. I'm really seriously thinking about going and it would be my first convention to go to, uh, to go to i mean the whole vibe of nevada uh, i was an art bell listener for so long and and until he passed in on desert oracle radio when he passed we did a little tribute to him just nevada seems other than this area where i where i was meant to be i i was texting with my mom (laughs) recently and she said is there anything that you miss about the east coast and they're really other than a, than individual people i'm a desert person you know i i really feel that in my core that it's inspirational to me i've never been as creative i've never been as happy i've never been um as part as much a part of a community um i was recovering from a car wreck when i first moved here and i didn't know a lot of people for the first couple of years but as soon as I put my pinky toe into the local culture, I was completely welcomed and immersed in it because it's not about who you know and who you are and how much money you have here. It's it's really, if you're contributing to the culture and not exploiting it and you're not making a lot of enemies around town, then you're going to find yourself with a lot of collaborators. And, you know, I play a until the pandemic played a lot of shows with a lot of people and often with the same people over and over again. And to me, that's the all test of whether you're adding to the culture of an area is how much people are willing to sign their names to things that they're doing with you for free. (laughs) I'll tell you what, that's a good, a good message to end it on because I always try to find a positive to, to leave the listeners with. And I mean, that's it right there. If you're contributing to a culture or a community in a positive way and not trying to exploit it, then you're going to find collaborators and people who support you and are willing to, um, you know, in some way uh, give something back. So I yeah, think that's a- I hear from people in other parts of the country that that you know, oh, you're in LA or you're within a couple of hours of LA. It's easier there. No, it has nothing to do with being a couple of hours from LA. This could have happened in Indiana. Could have happened anywhere. I reached out to my local documentary filmmaker. The fact that we're sort of in proximity to LA has no, we're not in the industry. We're not Hollywood. We're not nothing. It has nothing to do with that. So whether you're in Indiana or Massachusetts, find your local filmmakers, find your local collaborators. If you're a musician, you want to get into film music, there, you know, all there's a whole subgenre of music of people making uh, soundtracks to films that don't exist, and that's great. It's a great exercise and all of that. But for every one of those people, there's a director or uh, sitting in Starbucks writing their screenplay. Find that person, you know, and like do it, do it for real work with that same person if you can over multiple films so you can go you don't run climb you want to like come up together come up 
in accordance with people, work with them year after year. I've been working with the same people for three years. Randy, Desert Oracle Radio, Simultaneous Times, and Jeremy. And I have no desire to go beyond that really because I know I can trust them. And I feel like if we all work together, we will, you know, the rising tide will lift all boats. That's true, man. Good so point. So find, find, you know, find that person in your hometown or your area that might need you. Right. If you have to write, you know, 20 notes to get one little bite of, um, of positivity back, then just do that. Really. Good message, man. Uh, well, with that read, um, I think it's a good place to leave it. Uh, I would like to invite you back on at some point in the future, if you're open to that. Oh, of course. Yeah. And until then, thanks for joining me on dead hand radio. Have, have a great day, Andrew. It was a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, I, I like what you're doing. I think it, it, there are topics that need to be talked about. And uh, you're doing a great job of doing that. Thank you, man.